Hello, it's Sue Stiles here, and welcome to another episode of the Successful Solopreneurs Podcast. And today I want to introduce you to Pamela Barnum. Hi, hey, Pamela. Sue. Thank you so much for having me. I was admiring your background. We're going to talk a little bit about that through our conversation, but I love it. Talk about a lot of things. Yes. What I want people to hear from you is that uh, I know you're going to give us some techniques to be able to tell if anyone is deceiving us and how, how we can help show that we are trustworthy too. Um, Pamela has been an undercover police officer, a federal prosecuting attorney, and that has resulted in her being really an expert when it comes to trust, showing it consciously and unconsciously, the nonverbal communication. You know, we're all telling a story that we might not be conscious of. So. Uh, maybe you can tell us the story of how this all started for you. How did you become an undercover police officer? Welcome to the podcast. I hope you enjoy the honest advice and personal stories. I'm Sue Stiles, the CEO of the Successful Solopreneurs School of Business, and I'm here to share hope and possibility so that you can reach the unwavering results you desire. Find the best business resources, advice, and offers at suestyles.com. And now on with the show. Well, thanks so much, Sue. And I just, you know, I'm so grateful to be here with all of you. And I think that a lot of people get these ideas about undercover police officers from television shows or movies. And like anything, you know, like entrepreneurs or realtors or teachers, usually what you see on the screen is not really founded in reality often. So what? it does seem so glamorous, <laughs> like a rock star. Yeah. Oh, You're going to yeah. tell us about the work. Exactly. The glamorous part is a long days and a lot of mundane uh, activities that go around that. But for me, I didn't go into policing thinking that that's where I was going to go. I went into policing because I had an uncle who was a police officer and he used to tell, you know, really interesting stories, but all about being on the road. So he was a uniform officer. And what really struck me, and I think that a lot of your listeners will resonate with this, is that there was no day that was ever the same. So being a uniform officer, you don't know if you're going to be going to some sort of, you know, criminal offense or traffic offense or a lot of, a mix of both. And I was loving that, but I was really gravitating toward drug enforcement work because you have, you cultivate informants and you write search warrants. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, policing has been really in the spotlight in a lot of ways and, and often not for the right reasons because officers deal with really stressful, terrible situations that involve children and, and have a lot of different victims. And that was always really a challenge. Um, and drugs, of course, comes with its own set of uh, difficulties, but I was really drawn to that work. And about three years into my career as a police officer, the drug enforcement section recruited me. And that's when I went and uh, had an opportunity to do small undercover jobs. And then I worked my way and had long-term undercover jobs, which would be, you know, living with a different identity for months at a time in a different community over and over and over again. And I actually met my husband that way. He was another undercover police officer and we were uh, <laughs> assigned to work as a married couple, even though we had never met. And uh, so that was interesting. That's a whole different podcast, probably. But toward the end of that, I realized, you know, I'm in my, I'm getting into my mid 30s and starting a family is on my mind. 
And I thought, you know, buying drugs and living in a different town with a different name is not a real mom-friendly job. <laughs> and I was finishing law school at the time because I, I was attending law school, working full-time. And so I was really lucky that I was able to take all of my experience and my time with the government and transfer over when I went to the Crown Attorney's Office. And then that's when I uh, became a prosecutor after I became a mom. Wow. Uh, that is a full journey for anyone listening at, you know, any one of those things is a full-time career. Now you've got three of them under your belt. Um, you know, in case we forget about it later, let me just ask you, you know, we're business owners, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, when it comes to the trust, you know, from your experience, do you have some input advice what is the best way that we can get new business and have people trust us and want to work with us? Oh, 100%. That's a great question, Sue, because really, I think everyone would agree, and it's been in, in the news so much lately, about the post-trust era and a lack of trust. And we're seeing a lack of trust in governments. And we're seeing a lack of trust around our uh, the advice we're getting around healthcare. We have a lack of trust around financial decisions. There is so much happening within the media and, and that includes social media that we just don't know who to trust. And of course that starts to translate where we become very suspicious and a little bit jaded around everything that we're seeing. And if that's how we're feeling, of course, people who are in a position to hire us or work with us are having those same struggles. So building trust is so much more important, I think, than any other piece. We've heard that term, know like trust. Well, you'll often do business with people you don't know, and you'll even do business occasionally with people you don't like, but you will never, if you have the choice, do business with someone that you don't trust. And so having a trusting relationship is really, it starts before you ever open your mouth. And that's why when I started to get asked to talk about different things and talk about the lessons that I learned in my former careers, it always boiled down to trust. And it wasn't really popping into my brain. Okay, I'm going to talk about trust and I'm going to research trust. And when I go to graduate school and study corporate negotiations, it's not about trust, it's about negotiations. Well, negotiations are trust. Everything that we boil down is trust. So now the research that I do focuses on trust specifically around nonverbal cues. Because before anyone says a word, you've already decided whether or not you are trusting me. And that happens within the first 50 milliseconds. And then within the first seven seconds, your brain is searching for ways to back up your initial impression of me. And that'll include my voice. So for your listeners who are listening to the podcast and not watching any video, my voice is going to be something that is, they're either going to resonate with it and feel that there's competence there and a trust, a level of trust or not. And then they're going to listen for things that I say, content around uh, trust that's going to either elevate or deflate the trust that I've built with them. I think it's the same, you know, we've taken, have you ever listened to a lot of audiobooks or obviously your people listen to podcasts and you're really intrigued by the topic, but then you hear the voice or the cadence or something just triggers you and you don't listen anymore. No, I'm out of here. I'm well, out of here. When you go to your website, um, PamelaBarnum.com, Everything sounds so simple. You know, it's all well um, explained, all your years of experience, like, oh, and here it is, and it's so simple. But how can we take 
your years of experience and try to, you know, by metamorphosis, do something with what you've learned? I think that first impressions are critical. And I think we all spend a lot of time thinking, okay, I'm not, I don't want to worry about people's opinions of me. I want to be strong. I don't want to just be out there, you know, trying to get people to like me and do all of these things. And I completely get that. However, in a business scenario, we definitely need to make that initial first great impression. So I can go through a few tips that are visual, and then we can talk about a few things that are not visual, maybe auditory or things that people are reading. And of course, the first thing visually is to make great eye contact. That seems so simple and so easy, especially now that we've really transitioned a lot into situations that are virtual. But our visuals, we're looking, we're pre-programmed, we've evolved to make eye contact with people and to have that human interaction that comes from eye contact. Now, fortunately, we haven't been advised by anyone to cover up our eyes at this point. So we still have that really important part of our face that people can see, which means they're going to be paying even more attention to that eye contact and where we're looking and how we're looking. So so I've been to lots of different meetings and I know that you have as well and, and your listeners and that maybe they're going to conferences or uh, expos, et cetera. And you're in the bar after or you're at the hotel lobby and you're having a chit chat with someone and you see them shifting their eyes around like they're looking for someone more interesting to talk to, or at least that's how it feels. Or maybe they're just looking for the exit or the washroom or something, but they're not making that eye contact with you. And you start to really, you know, you tell yourself stories in your head, but at the end, you're really feeling a bit put off. And then you start looking for more reasons why you're put off and it starts to erode trust. So having that great eye contact, so important. And then posture. Oh, sorry. I'm going to let you go. Okay. I was just going to ask a question. Is there a balance or a fine line between um, engaging and showing that you're um, engaged with the person sitting there or, and, you know, can you make a person feel uncomfortable by staring them in the eyes the whole time? Absolutely. hundred percent. So there's, there's the great eye contact where someone feels drawn in and that you're engaged and listening. And then there is the, the creepy kind of, I need a restraining order sort of <laughs> eye contact. That I think, think I about. like, uh, I, I think of Tom Cruise, you know, when everyone says when they meet him, he's just interested in you and he smiles and it's captivating like the whole world melts away i think that uh, i like to be looked at like that and i think that's good too absolutely and and that comes from around a 60 the research tells us that 60 to 70 percent eye contact with the person that you're having a conversation with or that you're engaged with is really the best case scenario. And then virtually we're looking at over 90% because we definitely were watching that person. We don't see a lot of other cues happening. We have a very small window of body language to look at, which means the eyes are even more important. When we're in person, we're looking at the whole body. We're looking at the feet right up to the top of the head and we get a lot of different cues. But so that's how you can have less eye contact in person than when you're on a virtual situation. I know you have dissected this subject. Did you have an aha moment or did you look back and realize, wow, I have learned, had to learn how to lean on my instincts on whether I'm going to trust people or not trust people? How did this come about for you to, you know, to become an expert in this area. 
I think definitely it started out in when I was in uniform as a police officer, because you're watching for cues when you're dealing with people, you don't know what's going on. So you have to be hyper aware of every situation. And then even more so when I was working undercover, because all I had was me, there was no level of respect or concern because they didn't think I was a police officer. I was just a woman in a drug situation. So that brings a whole new set of dangers and concerns. So I had to be really hyper aware of everything that was going on around me, not just with the person that I was dealing with, but whoever else was in the house or the room or at the bar or on the street, wherever we were. And I really started to pay attention, even though cognitively, I don't think that I was aware that I was doing that. But then when we would have debriefs and do things, they would say, how did you know that was going to happen? When did you realize that that's where the situation was going? And I would, well, when he clenched his fists, when he moved away, when he moved forward, when he looked at this, the, the facial expressions. And I really started to pay attention. So I started reading some books on that. And then I thought, okay, well, I'm going to study it a little bit more. And I started to study. And then when I was in law school, we talk a little bit about that through interviewing techniques, et cetera, a little bit more of an academic perspective. And I was really drawn to that. And then, as I mentioned, in graduate school, that's when I started to do research around all of this. So it just sort of one layer on top of another is where, it, and now I'm a mom to a teenager. So of course, there's a whole new level of expertise that comes into play oh, when you're no. a parent. <laughs> You um, shared a story on a TED talk that I saw, and I've always remembered it and passed it along of how, um, my interpretation of it, how you prepared yourself inside to have nonverbal communication that showed you were trustworthy. Can you talk about that a little bit? For sure. I think you're talking about the one where I was locked in the drug house with the dealers and the dogs. Was it that one? Uh, I'd like to hear that one, but I'm thinking about one where you're walking up these stairs. Right. And tell us the being locked in a drug <laughs> house after that. So that all stems from the same um, incident. So I had a new drug dealer. My old drug dealer had um, an issue with too much use of her product. And so her area had been taken over by a new individual who I had never met before. And I had moved my way up to buy larger quantities of drugs, which brings a new set of issues and concerns when you're dealing with higher quantities, higher dollar value, likely lots of other issues come into play. So I was hyper aware and I was nervous for this one because I had never met him before. It was going to be at night on his turf and I had no with me. So I didn't have another undercover officer and I didn't have a cover team except one that was parked down the street because we couldn't have anyone else seen. So I had two other officers in plain clothes parked down the street, but I still had to walk the street, go into this place up three flights of stairs. It was like this old creepy mansion kind of thing. And you could hear the footsteps creak with every step. So I, I was announcing myself coming, which was a good thing because drug dealers don't, normally don't like drop-ins. They're not real big fans of that. So they want to know, you've scheduled an appointment to go and see them, especially the first time. So I'm walking up the stairs and with every step I'm taking, I'm telling myself, you've got this. It's okay. You've got this. And I don't know if I believed it in that moment, but I thought if I repeat it often enough, something is going to stick. And then when the door opened and I walked in, there's the gentleman who let me in, who's 
enormous, probably outweighed me by 150 pounds and six inches in height. And he's dressed in the whole thing, you know, the leather vest and the chains and all of that. I go in, there's two other guys sitting, packaging the cocaine. And then there's two Rottweilers on the scene as well. And then the door gets, is closed behind me. And then I can hear the deadbolt click and the chain slide into place. So now there's just me. I'm completely unarmed. I didn't bring, I didn't have a cell phone with me. So there's me, my cash to buy the drugs and these three guys, which, you know, could have done any number of things that you can imagine. But I stood as tall as I could. And I just instinctively put my hands sort of on my hips, not in the way, you know, your mom is scolding you when you get home from being out past curfew type thing, or you're in trouble, but just in a way to try to make myself appear a little bit bigger, even though I don't think at the time I realized that's what I was doing. I was just trying to exude some confidence and let them know that I was there to do business. And once the business was finished, I was leaving. And I think my face expressed that even though I could feel the sweat dripping down my back. I, you know, afterward, I told myself it was because I walked up three flights of stairs, but it was completely because I was very nervous and, and afraid. But I tried not to show that. And I think as solopreneurs, that's something that's so important. You know, they say never let them see a sweat, never let them see the fear, all those things. Of course, showing a bit of vulnerability and showing that you're human, obviously so important in building trust. But number one situation for me in that particular case was to show confidence, to not show fear. And when you do that in a business scenario, people imply that, that, that you're competent there. Because if you're confident and you're showing that you've got this covered, that gives them a sense of ease that, okay, he or she has this covered. I, I know that going into partnership or business with them, I'm going to be okay because they know what they're doing. And people feel more comfortable to link arms with somebody like that. So I think it all stemmed from, you know, the facial expressions, the upright body, the open posture, all, and also my stance. When we stand, you know, with our feet sort of hip width apart in, in a power pose, it sends a message to people. And I think as speakers, when you're on stage having that pose, you know, we've seen people, they cross their legs or they kind of wobble around or, uh, you know, they're standing like supermodels, et cetera, which is all great in certain circumstances, but it doesn't exude an enormous amount of confidence on the part of the speaker that the audience or the other person can, can receive. Wow. So you do have to tell us if you got away then and how that went. Yes, it went well because uh, I, I was able to purchase the drugs. The quality was good. I left unharmed with the product. And then at the end of the project, so when everything is finished, I, this project ran 10 months. So at the end, they, and they never know who you are until the, till it's too late, till the very next day when all of the takedowns are happening, all of the arrests are happening. And he was arrested and decided he wanted to go into witness protection because his supplier were, was related to organized crime. And he didn't want to go to prison for a long period of time, but he also couldn't give us information without putting himself and his family at a lot of risk. So he went into the witness protection plan. And then before court one day, I had to go and speak with him, uh, with my partner. And I asked him, you know, why did you lock me in the apartment that first night you know what was up with that because he got to know me after that i had done more deals with him etc but i was really still concerned that hadn't happened before where someone had locked me in 
And he said, you know, I just didn't know who you brought with you. You, you showed up there kind of sort of in my face a little bit. And I had no idea if you were there to rip me off and that you'd brought other people who were going to break in and take my drugs. So that's why I locked the door. So the lesson I took from that is we never know what someone else is thinking, even though we can read their nonverbals. And from no, when I mean read their nonverbals, what I'm indicating is you can get a sense of what their emotional state is. You cannot read their mind. There is no such thing as a human lie detector or mind reader or any of that. You can get really good at, at decoding the, the body language, but you're never going to know exactly what they're thinking. And that was a great lesson for me in that particular case, because I thought he was thinking, you know, sexual assault, violence, ripping me off, who knows what. Um, but that was not what was on his mind. He was worried that I had come there to harm him in some way. So you just don't know where people are going. Isn't that an interesting insight too? Because lots of times we fill in the blanks for what we totally. think our potential customer or client, or, you know, lots of times we get uh, say ghosted. Oh, well, they don't yes. want to work with me. And we honestly don't know that there's something going on in their mind. So yeah, in, very interesting. Exactly. So you can sense it in their nonverbals that they're a little bit agitated or uneasy, and you may see that as they're put off by you or something's going on, but there could be um, several different reasons. So our job as solopreneurs and as business people is to not give them more reasons to feel that way. Our job is to come across in the best possible light at every opportunity so that there's no concerns about not wanting to do business with us. If they don't want to do business with us, it's because there's a need that's not being met that's outside of our control and outside of what we have to offer. Right. So which one of those skills would help us size up somebody else and and discern or learn how to discern that they're um they're trying to blow one over on us or that they're not to be trusted well the first thing i think is to give yourself a little bit of time when you have that baseline that you can look to so making some small talk finding out a few things about them get being genuinely interested in what they have to say beyond what your business opportunity is that you're going to be discussing, it will give you that baseline. So you can talk about something as mundane as the weather or the traffic situation or sports that kids play, et cetera, all of these different little things, best book you've read so far, something that they'd have no reason to not tell you the truth about. And that's what polygraph operators do as well. They, they establish a conversation in the beginning that gets the person at ease or if you're in, if you're interviewing someone you get them at ease first and then when you start to get into conversations maybe around pricing or terms or conditions if you see a shift immediately following that stimulus so so i say something to you about the price is going to be xyz and all of along you've been smiling and nodding your head and leaning into me and you've had this open posture and now all of a sudden you cross your arms cross your legs you kind of look away you're adjusting your clothing um pacifying a little bit that in and it of itself does not tell me that that's been a turnoff for you but that's clue number one so then we get into a bit more conversation around maybe some terms or conditions, or we discuss the price a little bit more and that behavior continues or intensifies. That's a clue to me 
that something has gone off the rails. Now, if I'm asking you some questions and perhaps I'm in business with you and you haven't paid or you said you were going to deliver something and it wasn't delivered, whatever the situation is. And all of a sudden I ask you some questions about that. And again, your tone of voice changes, either you speed up or slow down if we're talking on the phone or if we're in person, your body language changes. When you have two or more cues, that signals to you that you are definitely on the right path and you should continue asking some clarifying questions until you find out what you need to find out. I'm just thinking of teenagers. <laughs> As uh, yes. before. I, uh, I myself have four children and so they're all adults now. So I've gone through those teenage years. Gosh, I wish I would have had this top of mind during those years. It is, it's very interesting and it's kind of fun because my son knows um, where my skill set is and my <laughs> husband's as well. So it's really interesting because I usually will start something and I think any parent can do this regardless of what your child thinks you know or don't know. Is there anything that you'd like to tell me before we move forward with the conversation? Like, is there anything? and? Just by saying that they think you know something and they're a lot more likely to disclose something or their shift in body language where they close off, look away, do something. It should be a good signal to you that yes, there is something more that needs to be discussed. Oh, that's a good one. That is a good one. You know, I used to have a friend uh, who actually became a counselor. So no, no doubt this was came naturally to her and we'd sit down and she'd take a deep breath. So, and I would spill the beans, you know, I would go on for half an hour and, and, but she didn't do that. She didn't spill the beans. And I've tried doing that same tactic with others and it doesn't come out as naturally. So I'm really enjoying how you're saying this for those of us who are maybe big talkers, like I'm an open book. I wouldn't even imagine hiding the truth from anyone if you asked, but we need to also um, get those skills because everyone is not like us. Exactly. And we might need to prod a little bit and be a little more aware of our surroundings. Absolutely. And so you bring up a great point with the breathing. So here's an exercise for people that if you're in a situation where the conflict is beginning to escalate either personally or professionally, if you just stop and take three deep breaths, not, you know, super unnatural breaths that are going to be absolutely noticeable, but a little bit deeper than you normally would so that it's slightly visible to the person that you're talking with, they will see that it will naturally begin to de-escalate the situation. So a few deep breaths on your part, taking those breaths, it's almost contagious. We naturally mirror others, either when situations are in conflict or when situations are going well, we start to mirror that other person. That's just a natural thing that happens. So if you want to de-escalate, best thing is to start de-escalating yourself first and watch what happens next. It's yeah. a negotiation tactic that works very regularly. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, um, you have also just to shift a little bit, you've pivoted careers. I, I was realizing, you know, you, you went from this to this, you added in something else. 
what kind of career advice might you have for people? You know, what if someone's thinking of starting a business or wanting to pivot? This is definitely the year of that. Can we use trust and nonverbal to help us understand even trusting ourselves? I mean, do you have something you could speak to to help those out there listening? Absolutely. Trust starts with you for sure. If we don't trust ourselves to make decisions because maybe we've tried a few things that didn't work out. So we start beating ourselves up around that. And that's everything from looking after our, after our health saying, you know, we're going to work out and do all these things. People do so many things, you know, we're coming up to the new year and there'll be a lot of promises made and broken. And then we start to feel bad about that. And I think the same thing happens in business. So the number one tip for sure is to get really clear on something that you're passionate about, interested in, feel that you have the skills for. I think that, you know, just saying that, you know, doing everything you love, well, sometimes that doesn't pay the bills because doing something you love is great as the foundation, but you've, you're the expert on all of this, Sue, and that is, you know, finding that, but then finding a way to get paid to do that. Mm-hmm. And you have to make sure that that's number one. You have to pay your bills and make sure that the business makes sense from that standpoint. But as far as trust goes, absolutely. Trusting yourself, going through and not making big steps, I think, at the beginning, because often trust is built not in one big block, but over a consistent period of time. And then your nonverbals with yourself. Here's a great TED Talk, the Amy Cuddy TED Talk, and she's a Harvard researcher and she talks about confidence and she calls it the power pose and you know picture superman or wonder woman hands on their hips again same idea she actually did research around when you stand like that for two minutes or more and you can either look at yourself in the mirror or just stand like that she has done testing that showed your testosterone level elevates slightly and your cortisol level will will go lower So that's your stress hormone. So, and our testosterone is our confidence hormone. I know there's more technical terms. That's not my area of expertise, but that's what I call them. And you'll see that you have that confidence. So if you're going to be going into a meeting or you're going to be negotiating a deal, if you do that for about two minutes before, it can change your hormone levels. And it sends a message to your brain that you're feeling confident. And that will be shown and people will be able to decode that from your display of confidence. I, I, I'm right back to that story of you walking up the stairs and taking those breaths and building up your confidence before you got to the door of a new client. How many times yes. I tell people this, you know, if you're going, I've worked with a lot of realtors before you go into the house, take a minute in your car and calm yourself down and do some breathing and remind yourself, that you're good at what you do and just take a minute. But I think we forget this all the time. We just get busy with something else. And the way that you're focusing on this and sharing this message is just, you know, for me, I'm always talking about best practices, doing the basics with brilliance. And this is basic um, brilliance. Yeah. Is there anything else you could leave us with that we can take with us today uh, that we haven't gone over yet? Well, I think, you know, in the past, a handshake was so important because that would really give someone the messaging that you have confidence, competence, and that oxytocin that's released from human touch to human touch would make a difference in our relationships, of course. It's highly unlikely that the handshake is going to come back to the same degree that it was before all of this for lots of different reasons. 
And, you know, from a health perspective, perhaps that's a good thing. So there are other things that we can do when we're meeting and greeting someone. Now we're going to lose the oxytocin benefit because there's no human touch happening. But the namaste pose, you know, the placing of the palms of the hands together with the fingertips up and a slight bow is a nice alternative that's first of all, accepted in a large part of the world. So a lot of people are already really familiar with that as a show of respect or a greeting or a goodbye. And it's something that can be done virtually because there is no touch involved. And it sends a message to someone that you respect them. And that goes a long way in building trust. Respect is a huge component. And when people feel respected and honored and heard, it goes a long way in establishing perhaps a long-term beneficial relationship. So as my parting advice, it would be to try to get into the habit of right now, it feels kind of awkward. People go to shake your hand, they pull their hand away. They're not sure we're, we're too far away to shake hands. There's all these things going on. But if we simply do a quick namaste, I think it's going to catch on a lot more. I've seen it happening in the business world. I've seen it in some virtual meetings and I'm a big fan personally. So I would love to see more people at least just giving honor to that person and showing that they respect them. Oh, well, what a great note to end off on. I really appreciate your insight and advice. And if you want to get some more Pamela Barnum, her website is her name. And where else can they find you on social media, Pamela? I would, I'm on all social media channels with just my name. So really easy to find. No barriers in your way. Look forward to seeing you take over the world with your message. Thanks for joining us today. And everybody, I will um, see you or you will hear me on our next episode. Have a good day and bye for now. Bye, thank you. Bye.